0: Well, language is an interesting thing. We don't think much about it until we're put in situations where we aren't conversing with people that speak the same language that we speak, whether a foreign language or maybe generationally, they're just speaking in terms that you no longer have any kind of access to. Uh, Being missionaries early in uh, uh, my pastoral ministry, we moved over to a small town, well, one of the third largest towns in Slovakia, but small compared to some of our larger cities, uh, to, in Eastern Europe, we moved to Slovakia. And we went out to dinner. Uh, one of our first weeks there, we had the unfortunate um, circumstance that our translator and the only person we knew in the whole nation, the day he picked us up from the, uh, from the airport, dropped us off at our home that he rented for us, sight unseen, single man, uh, which means his t- taste wasn't quite uh, maybe what my wife had wanted. Uh, but he dropped us off, got our bags and said, hey, I will see you in two and a half to three weeks I have finals in another city at university. Uh, And so just kind of make your way around town and figure things out. I'm sure you'll be fine. Uh, And we didn't know one word of Slovak. Uh, We didn't know where we were going. We didn't know how the bus lines worked. We couldn't read even the the timetable on the bus line because it was written differently than we keep time. Uh, But all that to say, we eventually made our way to town and went out to dinner uh, the first time there. And I ordered a coffee at least what I thought and said something that looked like coffee on the menu there were some choices underneath it I pointed to one uh, and I was given a coffee all was well so far so good Uh, and as it cooled down I took a big drink of it and with the taste of some very strong black coffee I also got a taste a mouthful of coffee grounds um, which was uh, both shocking uh, and uh, not very appetizing and so I told my wife, like, yeah, they they left the grounds in my coffee. That's really weird. Uh, And she said, well, you should tell the waiter. And I said, well, how am I going to tell the waiter? So I attempted to kind of fumble through this communication. I bring the waiter over. I tell him there's grounds in my coffee. And the waiter just keeps saying to me over and over, Turetsky. And I'm nodding my head, and I said, yeah, you know, it's coffee, but it has the grounds in it. And he's saying, it's Turetsky. And after about 10 minutes of this, it was pretty painful. Someone mercifully in the restaurant who spoke a little bit of broken English said, that's a Turkish coffee, which was also foreign language to me because I didn't know what that was. And so I said, yeah, but there's grounds in it. And they said, yeah, that's how it comes. It comes with grounds in the bottom, and you're supposed to sip it. You're not supposed to take a big gulp of it and swallow all the grounds. Um... So my first experience with Turkish coffee was not a welcome one. I love it now, uh, but uh, you you don't want to drink the grounds if you can avoid it. But we found through that experience, and many others like it, that language is a real binding agent. Uh, I made friends with people in Slovakia I would never hang out otherwise, simply because they spoke English. And it was such a relief to be able to sit down with someone at coffee And have a conversation without all of the mental hard work of trying to come up with the Slovak word for what I was trying to say. There's something about language that makes us feel comfortable and safe. It does bind us in relationships, but it also makes us known. I mean, think about how much your knowledge of other people is based on the conversations you have with them. Uh, You know, men, if you've ever heard, uh, and maybe in your relationships... You need to communicate with me. Uh, they're, they're not saying, I just want to hear you talk more. They're saying, I need to know you, and you're not expressing anything, so I'm in the dark uh, on this side of things about just who you are. Language makes us bound. It makes us feel known. It makes us feel safe. And when we don't aren't able to communicate, there is fear, uh, there's disorientation, and there's also, obviously, isolation and absence Well, this morning we see the development of that reality in our first text from Genesis chapter 11, where we see really this building uh, of a stairway to heaven, Uh, never mind the reference to a great song. I'll make a direct reference in the next part. Um, It's a famous text. I mean, one I'm sure that we all know. I remember it from my Sunday school days. There's great things for the flannel graph for this story. Uh, But if you're going to rightly understand Pentecost, what we celebrate this day, you really do need to understand this story first in order to make any sense as to why there was such a big deal about these languages being spoken in Acts chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 11, we see in the first four verses just a world united, uh, maybe something that we long for in our time. But notice there's one language, everyone speaks the same words, and while they have that kind of commonality and while that can be a positive thing, we see that immediately in this unity, they start becoming this force for evil, not for good. Because not only do they have a united tongue, you'll notice in verses 3 and 4, they have a united mind. They say, you know, let us make bricks, let us make a tower into heavens, uh, and let us make a name for ourselves. They use their capacity as those made in the image of God to subdue the whole earth to do just that. I mean, from the earth, they gather the material and the resources to both make bricks, but also to bind them together and to build or begin building this huge tower that would ascend into the heavens. But it's interesting, their purpose in being made in the image of God and subduing the earth, what they were called to do doesn't match what they're actually doing. Notice how they describe their own work. Let's make a tower that's tops go into the heavens, with the result that we will make a name for ourselves if we do that with the purpose of we don 't want to be scattered across the whole globe, we can be here safe and secure and in unity. each of these phrases as they pile up in the Hebrew really presents a problem to the reader if you know the story that the stories that came prior this tower has as its purpose reaching heaven itself uh, there through their own effort, through their own planning, through their their uniting, they're saying man as man can make a way from the terrestrial into the celestial realms. They can go from earth to heaven. I mean, this isn't just a vanity project. It's not just a large building that they're going to slap their name onto, you know, like we do with the donor's of our great buildings, whether it be the Rockefeller Center or Carnegie Hall or Trump Tower. That's the kind of way that we view these things. Well, it's just a project that kind of gives honor and homage to a human being. It's more than that. It's not just that they want their pride on display. This is a religious building. They are making, quite literally, a mountain to the gods made by men. Uh, This goes by a very specific term Uh, in the ancient Near East. It's a ziggurat. Uh, And basically, it really is a, a circular building shaped in a mountain. Maybe you've seen the pictures. It looks like a mountain on earth. It has a staircase that winds around the outside. And it becomes, for them, an access point between heaven and earth. The gods can descend into the earth upon this mountain. And man may be able, if all goes well, to ascend into the realm of the gods. And so by doing so, you'll notice their hope is that they will gain a name for themselves. They will make themselves known and important in the world. Notice in the scripture thus far, naming is pretty important. It shows up on the very first pages of scripture. Man is to name All of the animals. And we think of naming as just kind of like, do we like the sound of it? Will it look good on the quilt that we make or whatever? Uh, Does it rhyme with our last name too much? Will the kids make fun of them on the playground? Are there ways to make our child's life ruined by naming them this particular name? But that's not how it works in the Old Testament. Naming always goes from a superior to an inferior. And that's why, and rightly so, parents name their children. Uh, Again, we're not talking about quality, but we're talking about station and rank. That the one who is in the superior position names the one in the inferior position. That's why man is tasked with naming all the animals. Because he's given dominion over all of the beasts on earth. But here, notice, man wants to name themselves. If we build this tower... We will make a name for ourselves. We will gain and bestow our own honor in our own way. And all for the purpose of not being scattered around the world. I mean, step by step in this text, they really slap their maker in the face. Much like Adam and Eve before them, they're seeking a way to be in the world and to be okay, but without God. God. I mean, God has made people in his own image. He's told them, fill the whole world and subdue it. And he did this for one specific purpose. You're made in my image. If you fill the whole world, if you subdue the world and create like I created, then everywhere that man goes, everywhere that you see anything in the world, you will see a reflection of God himself, and God's name would be great over the face of the whole world. His fame would spread over all of his creation. But here they say, we will stay and we will do for our own name and for our own purposes. I mean, it's the age-old story repeated ad infinitum. A man in his rebellion musters all of his efforts for his own benefit, assuming that through this effort he can both be safe and he can be somebody. Like if I work hard enough, if I accrue enough, if I get enough of a reputation, I can secure my place in the world and people will know who I am. I'll be important in this life. I mean, think how much of your own sinning is based on these two realities. That you want to be secure. You don't want to live in fear. You don't want any, uh, you know, uh, loose ends. You don't want any unknowns. And so, you know, uh, when things are going wrong, when you, you know, you, uh, you, you, owe, you turn on your phone and you start looking at the stock market, all of a sudden, right, all of these fears start going through, you know, am I going to be eating cat food at the end of my days? You know, is this how it all ends? Uh, and so then, you know, we scramble. I got to make plans. I got to do something. You know, we want to be secure, but we also want to be known and seen and acknowledged. We want people to think well of us. We want to be somebody. We don't want to just be the anonymous guy in the corner, you know. We want to leave some sort of legacy for ourselves. And when people disrespect that, or they think little of us, or they speak ill of us, how quick we are to react and to act out in sinful ways. I mean, so much of our sinning is based on fear and based on our own pride. And that's what we see coming to the fore in this text. Well, it's interesting, in the story of the Tower of Babel, literally every person in the world is involved. There's only one character missing from the story, if you will. Uh, Completely left out of all the planning, and all of the doing, is the maker of men himself. And we see in this text that he had plans of his own. I mean, they have made their plan, they've done the legwork, they're all in agreement, all their energy and effort has been applied, the permits apparently have been approved. I mean, what could stop this from happening since the whole world is working together toward this common end? Maybe that's how you view the world right now. I mean, what can stop man from just doing what he wants, executing all the evil schemes that he puts his mind to? I mean, sometimes we, we, we watch uh, you know, the news and we imbibe information as if What we're seeing with our eyes is the whole story. And if all of these people get in, you know, cahoots together, what's to stop them from doing exactly what they want to do in the world? As if God doesn't have plans of his own. And as if his plans can't overturn the best laid plans of men. And you don't get more of, if you will, a one world government than this. And still here, offstage, unseen and, and ignored is one player who has yet to speak, and yet God has plans. He comes down, you'll notice, to see. And when we hear that in the Hebrew, it's not like God's like, i got to get down there to see what's going on. I I can't see from all the way up here. Uh, But that's a seeing as an act of judgment. It's an evaluative seeing. So it's like when you say to your child, "Uh, let me see your homework. You know, it's not because you just want to see it. You're going to pass judgment on what has been done. You want to evaluate whether the effort has been sufficient or insufficient. It's the same thing that God did just chapters before this, when it says the Lord saw the wickedness of mankind, the thoughts and intents of their heart were only evil all the time. So he sees them, he evaluates them, and he says, that's it. I'm going to flood the whole earth. Uh, So he comes down again in, in this story of the Tower of Babel, and he's here to evaluate the project And you'll notice when he does, he limits man. He says, here's the problem. There's one people. It's funny, in the Hebrew, it's a real terse statement. One people, one lip. In English, we make it a much bigger sentence. But he says, there's one people and there's one lip. So let's go down and confuse their language so that they will then, uh, not, they'll put off this project and they can't do these things anymore. And so you'll notice there comes many lips and from that, many people. They're scattered over the face of the whole earth. So you'll notice that people begin to congregate by language groups, and you'll see in chapter 10, the previous chapter, they begin to go to different places in the world where they can be in community with one another and know one another and dwell in a certain amount of safety and unity. You'll notice what was the source of their unity and their planning becomes the source of their division as God comes down and judges them. You'll notice God wins. I mean, he gets his way. He told them, fill the earth. And multiply, they said no, and then he said, here you go, languages. And then they filled the earth. Uh, He did exactly what he had planned to begin with, even though they were in complete rebellion against him. And that should bring us a certain measure of comfort. But of course, them being scattered over all the earth and still not knowing or loving God isn't quite the grand vision of Genesis or the grand vision of Scripture. And so more needs to be done. If they're building a stairway to heaven, the next thing we see... Is buying a stairway to heaven. Our story begins with unified man using the world for their own name until God comes down and stymies their whole plan. He reverses everything. And surely that shows us God's power. But it isn't quite good news since we find ourselves with mankind on the receiving end of that judgment. We live in a world that still bears this division in countless ways, where, you know, we may fear, well, the whole world's going to get together to do something, but you can't even get 10 people in the same room to agree on anything in this day. So we have these strange fears of, you know, utter unity, and then we have this grand reality of division, and all of it stems from what happened all the way back from the fall, and then is shown quite clearly in the Tower of Babel. But of course, in this story, God came down and everything changed. He reversed everything. And as history would go forward, God would come down again in order to reverse everything. God so loved the world that he sent his son. And that son, that word became flesh and he tabernacled, he became embodied, if you will. He became a building, an access point between heaven and earth where God meets man in this God-man, the Lord, our Savior. And he came down to the world not to judge the world. But that the world through him might be saved. He even said, if I be lifted up, speaking of the cross, I will draw all men to myself. And when he's using that language, he's speaking about all the nations. I'm going to draw draw all sorts of peoples to myself. So that scattered world that's all in division, he's saying, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will begin to draw all those peoples back into one commonality. And of course, when he was done with that work on the cross, as he was raised from the dead, he was taken up into heaven where he dwells secure at the right hand of God. It's interesting. He ends up in that place where our forefathers in Babel were trying to go on their own, trying to use all of their best efforts to make some way that they could get to heaven by climbing. in all in order to make their their life safe and secure, to give themselves meaning, to give themselves a name. And now we have Christ Jesus at the right hand of God where there are pleasures forevermore, where he dwells in the safety of the shadow of the wings of the Almighty, where nothing can touch or threaten him. And as he sits there, he bears a name that is above every name, to which every uh, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. You'll notice he gains through his cross work what we were seeking to gain through our own efforts. And that brings us to our final point, and really to tie this to Pentecost, that he brings a stairway to heaven. I mean, it is good news indeed that Christ came to die for sinners, but it doesn't become good news for us at a distance. You know, Calvin says, you know, all of Christ dying and rising is of no use to us if Christ remains at the right hand of God and doesn't somehow give it to us or apply it to us. I mean, what does it matter that someone died in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and God raised him from the dead? What does that do for you if he remains at a distance from you? Well, that's why we celebrate today. And that's why Pentecost is a big deal. Is because Christ didn't stay at a distance. In Acts chapter 2, we see a man accessing the very throne of God because he followed God followed God's words and God's prescribed means for glory. The one thing our first parents didn't do, what the whole world didn't do at Babel, they tried to do it their own way and their own timing, by their own means and their own efforts. And the Son of Man came time and again saying, Not my will, but your will be done, even if that will... Lands me on a Roman cross. And Peter says of him, This Jesus, in Acts chapter 2, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, verse 33, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And notice verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel assuredly know that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Both Lord and Christ. Notice he gets a name, Lord. That name that's above every name. But he also gets access to God's presence. He's exalted to the right hand. He gets what we want. He wants to be known. We want to be known. We want to be important. We want to have, you know, this meaning. He gets this name, but he also dwells secure in the shelter of the Almighty. And notice what he does. He poured out that which you now see and hear. Notice the result. Tongues of various kinds. And we read this story, and it's weird. I mean, Acts chapter 2 is weird, and it's been used for many weird purposes all throughout Christian history. But it's not trying, uh, if you will, uh, to just send us into some, wow, what kind of gifts can we go and seek? It's trying to tie what God has been doing in history to what Jesus has just done in his ascension and pouring out of the Spirit. In Babel, when an attempt was made to ascend to heaven by means of a tower, the result was tongues of various kinds. And at Pentecost, we see in verse 4, that when the Spirit of God comes upon Christians gathered in the upper room, the result was tongues of various kinds. But of course, there's a difference. In Babel, the giving of language from heaven was an order to disperse them that they might not be unified and ultimately plan and scheme against God. But at Pentecost, the giving of languages from heaven was in order to gather men who were once dispersed from every nation under heaven in order to make one nation truly under God so that his name would be known and praised over the whole of the globe as he originally intentioned from the creation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. God is making, in Acts chapter 2, one people from all the peoples of the earth. You heard what they said. How is it that each one of us is hearing in our own native tongue the glories of God being declared from those who shouldn't be speaking it? So the end result is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one holy and united church. And you notice that this story doesn't end here. This is the beginning of what Christ is doing in the world. And he really is doing something. And whatever you feel about, you know, God's success in the world at this present time, or however much fear you're experiencing and anxiety about it, he tells us exactly how the story ends. In Revelation, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could even count. They were from every nation and tribe and people and language, and they were all standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a singular loud voice voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb you see you who were once afar off without God and without hope in the world have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ but that blood was applied to you because the spirit came at one point in your life and that which was a formerly of no attraction to you became attractive that which you formerly could not confess you confessed Jesus Christ is the Lord, to to the glory of God the Father. And we have been gathered as a church and made one to give glory to His name. But what is more, I mean, the things that you sought sinfully and willfully, the things that you still seek sinfully and willfully by your own strength, have been gifted to you by the work of Christ and by the application of the Spirit. You have been given a name. I mean, you are somebody and you've been given the highest name you'll ever receive without any effort of your own, without any of your own doing. You have been called a son of God. You know, oh, what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that you, that I, should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And notice, we are... Because he gave it to us as gift. The thing that you've been striving for your whole life, Christ through his work and the application of the Spirit, gives to you as sheer grace. And you've been given access once and for all to the presence of God. Now, of course, by faith through the Spirit. But on that last day, you will see him face to face. And there you will dwell in safety. Secure forevermore. That whatever worries you now, can be laid aside even presently because that gift is yours now. You have access to the Lord of glory right now, presently. You can cast your cares upon him, knowing that he cares for you. And you know he cares for you because he sent his son to die for you. And he who would not withhold his own son, how will he hold back from you any good thing? We who have all lifelong sinned against God and rebelled against his word are called the very children of God. We who through our sin have avoided God, tried to stay out of his presence as much as possible, unworthy to be near him, terrified of his judgments and the effects of our own sin, have access to heaven at all, have access to heaven, and when there are under no threat at all. So that this becomes our song. And they sang with a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you have ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests. And they shall reign on the earth. That is God's promise to you. That has already been applied to you because the Spirit has come at Pentecost. And he's come into your own life and drawn you to the victorious Son. May you place your faith there. Let's pray.